Welcome to Dear Human Resources. In each episode, you'll hear about current HR topics and trends from experts, both practitioners and researchers, with the goal of giving you an insider's look at human resources. I'm your host, Marilyn Germain. In this episode, Nancy Murphy, founder and president of CSR Communications, talks about entrepreneurship, organizational change, and she also makes some recommendations for HR professionals. Welcome, Nancy. Thanks for having me, Marilyn. So most people are familiar with the term entrepreneurship, but not so much with entrepreneurship. Can you explain what the differences are between the two? Of course. So entrepreneurs are those folks who disrupt from the outside, right? So they have that innovative spirit, that disruptive mindset, and they're going to go off and start their own thing as a way to shake things up. Intrapreneurs bring that same entrepreneurial mindset and innovative spirit, but they're changing organizations from within, So their style of disruption is to stay inside the organization and see how from that place they can change it to be more innovative, equitable, sustainable, ethical, whatever their goal is. Why do you focus so much, why do you focus your work on entrepreneur? Well, I believe that intrapreneurs are the unsung heroes of organizational change. So oftentimes we get the grand gestures, the bold proclamations. If we pay attention at all to the news in the last couple of years, we've seen company after company, organization after organization make these public commitments. But it's the internal change agents, those intrapreneurs who show up every day to do the small strategic sustained action that makes the change stick, that makes it real. And oftentimes, these folks aren't the celebrated heroes inside their organizations. They're the ones doing the hard work, sometimes pushing against the status quo in ways that can make them not the most popular person inside the organization. But I believe that if we are going to create the world that most of us want, we need to have our large legacy institutions be able to change because they have the reach, the expertise, the financial stability, the scale to really make change in the world faster. So that's why I focus my efforts on those intrapreneurs, those internal change agents. Are there specific mistakes that most entrepreneurs make and how can they avoid those mistakes? There are many. And and trust me, I made a lot of these early in my career, which (laughs) is why I do what I do now. So I I sort of bring the scars, the battle scars with me to this work. But a few that I'll share with your listeners today. One is going it alone. So when we're talking about organizational change inside you know, any organization over even 50 people, it's a hard thing to do alone. But so often, we don't really recruit others to 
carry the burden with us. So a big mistake is going it alone when what we need is that sort of circle of change champions inside to help with the ripple effect and carry the burden. And also a group of intrapreneur peers outside the organization that can offer us insight, perspective, and support. So that's one mistake. Another mistake is what I call not adopting the campaigner's commitment. So we'd all love to proclaim our vision for change once and just be done with it. Have everyone get on board and have it be realized. But like the candidate on the campaign trail, we must give our stump speech over and over and over for days, weeks, sometimes months with the same level of enthusiasm. And that kind of leads me to mistake number three, which is what the Heath brothers call the curse of knowledge. So oftentimes, entrepreneurs have been thinking about or planning this vision for change for a while. And so we sort of know what we mean. We can fill in the gaps. We start talking to others about it, and we forget what it's like to hear it for the first time. We forget that others need to process it, and they're going to ask questions as a way to do that, as a way to deepen understanding, which leads me to my fourth common mistake, and that is we get defensive and frustrated in the face of resistance or pushback, as opposed to seeing resistance as a gift that can really make our ideas stronger, illuminate blind spots. And for a lot of people, just asking questions is a way they deepen their understanding and kind of process what they're hearing. But if we put up our wall or get defensive or get frustrated or angry when others ask questions or push back or challenge us, well, we're not going to get anywhere in that scenario. For those who know a little bit about resistance to change, we all know it's almost inevitable. So what can leaders do and entrepreneurs do to overcome resistance to change? And can you give us a couple of examples of that change? Absolutely. So let's start with the first thing leaders can do or entrepreneurs can do to overcome it, and that is to shift their mindset around it. So if we can see resistance, like think about resistance training at the gym, right? Strength training. We go in, we put weights, we give some resistance to make ourselves stronger. So if we can see resistance inside our organizations to change as a gift, as something that will make us stronger, then we can start to overcome it. Well, then we can start to learn what's really underneath it, and then we can overcome it. So the other thing leaders can do is to start to listen for cues that might illuminate the specific type of resistance so that you know what you can do about it. So for example, we've identified three common types of resistance And I can give you a little snapshot of each and one thing that folks can do to overcome it. And then I'll give some examples about the kinds of change that we're talking about here. So the first type of resistance to change are the status quo defenders. So these are folks who use language like, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And their identity might be really closely tied to the way things are. 
They might be people who created the current system or process or culture or ways of doing things. And so we want to be really careful when we're criticizing or challenging the status quo that we do it in a way where we're sensitive to they're going to hear it as an attack on their identity. So we want to talk about things might be pretty good right now, but they could be even better. Or this particular culture or process or system served us well up to this point, but it's not going to be what takes us forward. So we can invite those folks to help us identify the things we want to preserve and protect as we move forward with change. If we give them the right parameters and kind of criteria, they can do that well. The second type of resistance to change are the the what ifers. So these are the folks who are the kind of doomsday planners. You know, these are the folks who dream up the deepest darkest things that can happen if we make some change. So they're the ones saying, well, what if we do this and all of our employees walk out the door tomorrow? Or what if we do this and we get sued? So for these folks, we want to play to their strengths. We want to invite them to do some scenario planning. Go ahead and imagine the worst thing that might happen if we change this policy or adopt this new benefits administrator. Then ask them, how likely is that to happen? What would we do if it did happen so that you can start to mitigate or put some things in place to give folks comfort who might be those doomsday dreamers? And then the third type of resistance to change is um, the yes, no men and women. And these are some of the most frustrating types. And there are actually four subtypes on this one. I won't go into all of them in detail, but these are the folks who sit in our office, in the team meeting, in the town hall, and they're shaking their heads. Yeah, yeah, they're all on board. They're ready to go. And then they walk out the door and they do the exact opposite, or they don't do the thing that you needed them to do to move forward with the change. And so that can be really frustrating. So we want to figure out, is that because of a lack of will or a lack of way? So is it that they really don't want to change? And so they're going to stall. They're just going to wait you out and hope that you get frustrated and give up on this idea or leave. And then they can just go back to doing things the way they have been doing them. Or are they really struggling because there are some artifacts, some little things we've left behind as we're moving forward with this change that are in conflict with it, that make it really, really hard for people to do what it is we want them to do, or perhaps erode trust and have them believing that we're not really committed to the change. So those are the the different types of resistance to change. And we can imagine some different scenarios where that resistance would come up. So what kind of change are we talking about? If you think about the HR context, I mean, this could be anything from, you know, implementing Workday in your organization or signing an agreement with a different benefits administrator or provider. But more of what we focus on at CSR Communications might be an organization that says we need to increase the diversity of our workforce or of our senior leaders. Or we want to have performance reviews that people don't dread that actually do something to improve performance and lead to learning and growth. Or we want our managers to really be coaches 
as opposed to overseers or bosses. We want our managers to be coaches. So what does that look like? And how do we need to change their training and their incentives and their uh, reinforcement? Or we want to increase the retention of women leaders. So we worked with an organization that as women got to a certain level and they were about to get promoted, they would leave. And this was a perfect example of some of those artifacts coming into play because the organization started a mentoring program and they created a gender council to advise the CEO, but none of that was working. So we came in with our proprietary excavation process and we found a bunch of little things they'd left behind that were sending the signals they didn't want to send to women, such as regular 7.30 a.m. leaders team meetings and (laughs) yeah, and shout outs at the start of every week's staff meeting that all sounded something like, Huge thanks to Nancy and her entire team for working around the clock last week on that big proposal. Really made all the difference. So women were hearing that the way to succeed or what gets celebrated in the organization was working around the clock, right? There was no work-life balance or ability to meet family obligations and work obligations. So those are some examples of the types of change that folks might be leading that that these principles and tools can apply to. What recommendations would you give to HR professionals who are leading some change efforts in their organizations? And you say that people leading change within organizations need to operate more like Indiana Jones. Can you explain what you mean by that? (laughs) Yes. So for those listeners who are familiar with the Indiana Jones movie series, we say that change leaders need to operate more like Indiana Jones. And in this instance, your HR professionals who are leading change because like Indiana Jones, they need to go on a quest, on an archaeological dig, right? For those artifacts that I just gave some examples of that might be conflicting with the change they want. So when we leave these little things behind that tell us who and what we value, what matters, and how things really get done around here, and they conflict with the change we want, then we make it really hard for people to do the things we need them to do. So they may really want to work in a different way or change their behavior, adopt a new mindset or pursue a new customer line or recruit different kinds of candidates for open positions. But we've aligned all of our processes and checklists and systems and protocols and policies to something different. Or like I said earlier, they may get these mixed signals, like in the example of the women leaders who were leaving right before they got promoted to the the next level. They may hear you say, we want more women in our executive suite. But the signals they're getting, tell them maybe you don't because you're making it really hard for us to do those jobs. So then that erodes trust and people don't believe you're serious about the change that you've put out there, that the commitment, the proclamation, that sort of grand gesture you may have stated is not real. 
So I have one last question for you, Nancy, that I'm curious about. You're the founder and the president of CSR Communications. For me, CSR is corporate social responsibility. Is that what it is? It was when I first started the company. We did a lot of work in the CSR space. That was my background coming into this entrepreneurial venture. And we do still work with a lot of corporate social responsibility teams or professionals, sustainability teams. We sort of think of CSR communications now as change strategy and results. And we work with any social purpose team or organization, socially conscious businesses, really those who are striving for some sort of mission-oriented goal or positive social change in the world. And obviously, HR folks inside many organizations, you know, they're the people people. They're the ones who are dealing with a lot of the important social issues and equity issues and inclusivity and fairness and all of those things that have been in the forefront of the news for the last year. So we've last couple of years. So we've been working with a lot of teams in that space recently. Has anyone come to you to help them with the transfer from work in person to work remotely? Yes. And that's something, especially as we look now at the sort of hybrid permanent, <laughs> perhaps, is, is the way to think about it, workplace. This is a space where a lot of artifacts can be in place around who gets access, who gets visibility, how do you evaluate performance, things like that. So if going forward, some folks might be in person in the office more frequently and others may not ever or less frequently, what are all the artifacts we need to look for that could reinforce inequity in that or could create challenges that or consequences that we don't want to have happen. So we're looking at some of that now, but certainly in the early days of the pandemic, we were doing a lot of work around, you know, helping people process the idea of loss, even if it wasn't at that moment a loss of life due to the pandemic. But there was lots of loss happening when people were immediately sort of sent home and not used to the things they had normally experienced in the workplace and or in their personal lives and how were teams creating space for the grieving of that loss and what would folks need to be able to move forward. So certainly a lot of change, some change that we were forced to deal with and reacting to, and then change that people are proactively leading in the last couple of years as well. And how do we help teams and, and leaders right now prevent change fatigue, which is a normal, natural experience given everything for the past couple of years, but how do we prevent that from becoming change revolt where people are actively undermining or sabotaging change that you're trying to lead? Thank you, Nancy, for your insights on uh, entrepreneurship and organizational change. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dear Human Resources. In each episode, you will hear about current HR topics and trends from experts, both practitioners and researchers, with the goal of giving you an insider's look at human resources.